Welcome to the BG Podcast, conversations at the intersection of business, community, and public policy from the Austin metro and around Texas. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com slash podcast and on iTunes and Google Play. Hello, this is AJ Bingham, CEO of the Bingham Group, and welcome to the BG Podcast. Our guest today, our returning guest, is Dr. Colette Pierce-Burnett, the president and CEO of Houston Tilton University in Austin. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Burnett. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate well, you and what you do. And, and likewise, likewise, and you know, we'll get. I want to get to you know why we're here to talk today um, about some of the current events and how HT has played um, a part in that most recently. But for those who aren't familiar with Houston Tillotson, can you give a quick synopsis of background on on, on the history of HT and its place in Austin? Of course, um, we pride ourselves on being the first institution of higher learning in the in Austin, Texas. We were founded in 1875 and 1876. There were two separate institutions, Houston and Tillotson, and combined later to be Houston Tillotson College and now Houston Tillotson University. And um, one thing that um, I marveled over is that we were founded 10 years after Juneteenth which was the emancipation of slaves here in, in Texas. So that speaks to the grit and resilience of our founders. Mm-hmm. And we are a, a, a liberal arts, small liberal arts college, historically black college. Um, and we um, were 1,100 students. And it's really, it makes me smile when I think about the mission of the institution. We have faith-based roots uh, in the United Methodist Church and United Church of Christ. And I think we have a, just a continuing important role here in Austin, particularly being located here in East Austin. We're like a beacon and a, a rooted reminder of the history of Austin. And um, the role that the university plays right now is filling the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, in these modern day times, I think that the mission of historically black colleges to serve populations that have been traditionally marginalized and left out. And we do it without question or hesitation now for 145 years and counting. Mm-hmm. That's and like a two and minute elevator. That's a two that's minute great. elevator speech for a 145 year old institution. It's a great place on yeah. Blue Line Hill on Chicago. Yeah, I love it. And we'd, we'd spoken about the university probably about a year ago, last time we were on the show and talked mm-hmm. about just, just, you know, it's placed in the East side, particularly as Austin's, Austin development, both commercial and residential, is pushing east. I mean, along along um, the Seventh Street corridor, which the university um, borders, and mm-hmm. how pivotal it is in that sense too. Just because you're in the middle of all this, you know, commercial development, all this just growth, not not and opportunity, right? Right, and that's something I think related to the times now in terms of as the city has grown, um, in every facet, right? How are those? You know, how are your students? being able to, as, as, as companies are looking for minority, te- for black talent, mm-hmm. are they looking outside, you know, elsewhere outside of Austin or Texas, or are they looking in their backyard, right? Across they the, should, the they should be look, they, Right, they should be looking in their backyard. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a tagline called hashtag I am the pipeline. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm myself an engineer, and I know, um, I'm an old engineer, um, but I know that companies hide behind this we can't find any qualified people to hire and you're, you're, we can't find anybody to put in the pipeline and you're hiding behind something that's not real. It's a myth. Mm-hmm. 
It's easy to say. So if I keep saying it, people begin to believe it. But we have two undergraduates plus a year. And even liberal arts majors, even though we have the sciences, we have a college of you know, arts and sciences, we have sciences, but we're a liberal arts school and liberal arts majors make wonderful employees. You know, we, we, we know that. I was one myself, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, getting to the state of the world, um, you know, just we know the last several weeks we've seen protests related to the murder of uh, George Floyd. Um, and things, we talked this before the show, but things that unfortunately in the black community were, it was no, nothing, it was no surprise, I would say. It was unfortunate, but it was, it was a tragedy that we've known, and I think a lot of, well, a lot of the world is realizing, the non black world is realizing now that how common these things occurred than even the ones that were that were known not the, you know, the unknown ones mm -hmm. um and i've been personally getting a lot of questions you know from my friends and colleagues about how i felt with all this and i want to put that back on you three ways one as you know just as a black woman as a mother of black children i think your children are about you know my age my brother's age and then also as the leader uh of a historically black university mm -hmm. and the steward of you know a hundred you know over a thousand you know, students Mm -hmm. um, who are major mainly majority black. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as a mom, um, you, 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 you hit dead center. Um, this is anxiety, anger, fear, frustration that we carry around as black people all the time. You just press it down. Mm -hmm. You have these um, you have biases, stereotypes, blatant racism that happens to you all the time. What we didn't have um, for 400 years plus is video cameras and so that we film it and I wrote a piece to my uh, communication to my campus community and in it I said even still people are telling us we're not seeing what we see mm -hmm. so we this is a, a, a moment in history as black people that we cannot rest in holding everyone to include ourselves accountable for a change um, that's going to be a lot of hard work, but well worth it to change generations ahead. Um, if you think about the civil rights movement where um, it was hot on Sunday, where we had the protests here on campus, um, the march began on campus and then the, um, the protests and the march on campus began here on campus to go to the Capitol, it was hot. And um, Chaz Moore, the um, founder and CEO of the Austin Justice Coalition said, that can't stop us. Um, the people who marched in Selma, it was hot. Mm -hmm. They were pushed back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those that marched in DC, it wasn't comfortable. Um, those who could not, who were physically hurt because they were trying to learn how to read, it was not comfortable. And even with my own institution's history, it was illegal to do what they were doing. They, people lost their lives to do it. So that motive should motivate us with that continual determination to affect change without apology and using our voices in a, um, a very methodic and strategical, strategical and unified way in solidarity, not to let people rest back into what I call cloaking ourselves and our privilege. And that's people of all colors. Mm -hmm. So as a so, having you know been in this fight in this struggle just by nature of the color of the skin that I'm born in, um, I I feel I've been um, some people that I'm close to tell me that I can I want I think 
I want the best out of people all the time, almost to a trusting point. And it is challenging, like, do we trust this time? Yeah. Like this time, yeah. what's going to make this time different? And even though I feel encouraged by my experiences here recently, I'm also leery and worrisome that people will go back and cloak themselves in their privilege one month, two months from now, COVID-19 goes away. We're not forced to be in quarantine. You know, we're not forced to sit at home and watch TV and have it in our places. And we just kind of go back and forget and we don't make progress. So the shift, I mean, in my welcome of the march, I said, are we the, those that we've been waiting for? Yeah. And it's really everyday citizens. It's everyday people. Um, just a classic example, I was reading this morning where Webster's Dictionary is changing the definition of racism. And that's, they're going to include the concept of oppression, systemic inequities, oppression. Racism causes oppression. And it's because someone who recently got their law degree wrote them a letter and made them think about it. So that might seem small, but that's not small because people often use the definition of words to dictate their action. So the, the point I'm making is like those people who were here on this campus, 10,000 plus people at that March on Sunday, then what will those people do the rest of their lives in their sphere of influence to affect change. Like when you go back and look at your board of your, of your nonprofit and everybody looks like you, and you don't intentionally engage the new philanthropist organization to find um, boards of members of color, mm -hmm. board members of color. Um, do you send your child to a daycare center that doesn't allow vouchers, which is a systemic way to keep poor people away from your children? Do you continue at that daycare center? Do you not show up to a school board meeting when they're advocating about the types of, um, of curriculum or education? Or do you sit back and wait for somebody else to do it? So it's, what, it's how we live our own lives. Do we shy away when we see a young black man or do we treat black people at work differently because of our own things that we think in our mind? Or do we confront our own biases? And then for my own people, do we hold people accountable and, and, and educate ourselves? I'm an educator and I feel very strongly that education is a great equalizer. It is a weapon against racism and poverty. So do we invest in the education of our young people? Do we believe in them and continue to encourage them to get their degrees or to get their post-secondary, whatever they choose to do post-secondary? So what am I doing in my own life to take this momentum, this anger, this fear, this frustration, um, this horror over, you know, these senseless killings that we see, what am I going to do? So when I, you know, when I um, have um, my white friends ask me, you know, what can I do? How can I help you? My question is back to them. What are you going to do in your life? I don't need your help um, as Colette. Now, I need you to invest in my institution in a very serious way. If you're very serious about what you're talking about, that you believe in the mission, then invest in it. You know, what nonprofits are you, are you helping? Are you advocating for Six Square? You know, are you um, going to ACC with the, with the centers that ACC has? All these ways that you can support people in Austin. What are you doing in your own personal life? 
because I have my form of activism. It's, it's my work of what I do here at Houston Tillerson to educate black and brown children. It's our main focus. We educate all colors. HBCUs have never segregated. Um, but we we focus on black and brown children. So what so what are you going to do? My charge is back to people. What are you going to do in your sphere of influence, your life that will in effect affect change? And we gotta keep that light out there shining on people to say this is not going away unless we do something about it. Mm -hmm. And as a mom, the hardest thing for me was when I saw Omar Jimenez, um, the CNN reporter, um, be arrested on live television. My son is a journalist and um, he um, was almost arrested twice in Chicago, which are very moment like markers in my life, fear. And when he was in graduate school at, NY, at Columbia in, in New York City, he was stopped frequently and asked why he was there, frequently, um, which is harassment. So when I saw Omar Jimenez um, be arrested and then later he talked about his own mother watched that unfold on TV, that was very hard for me. And my two children live in the epicenter. My daughter lives in Los Angeles and my son lives in the Washington DC area. It's the epicenter for the virus compounded by the epicenter for civic unrest. Mm -hmm. um, and my children are both activists in their own way. And I, we, we've raised them to be that. But then I have a little anxiety as a parent because they are in danger living in the two epicenters of the virus as well as um, the civil unrest, civic unrest. But we've raised them to be um, proud of who they are, proud of their culture, proud of the color of their skin, and then take that and do something to serve others so that you can, you know, you can enhance the lives of people who look like you. Mm -hmm. I know we talked before the show, but I just wanted for the audience, right, on the parental part, and I don't have kids, but when all these things, um, you know, all these events occur, right, it like, I think about, I do think about my childhood, and just, you know, I grew up in Austin, my childhood, my teen years, just running around the neighborhood, or you know, going, going down the drag when I was in high school and hang out with my friends and college years and fraternity. I was a, in a white fraternity um, at a very white school, like Wake, Wake Forest. And then even going back to Austin, just all those, you know, just those learning moments in life that you were lucky to get through and nothing, no, no ripples really affected your overall, like the finished product, right? But all those times when you look back on it, you're like, and you're, and my parents might have been on me more about, hey, be careful when you go out. And you're a kid, you don't think about it. You're like, ah, I'm like, yeah, whatever, mom, dad, you're just worrying too much. And you look back on it, you're like, oh my God. I mean, I get, I get, it's like self-anxiety, like back to the future thing. You're like, look at yourself like, oh. Right. Oh, you're like, you're just razor thin, like right there on the wire, like, you know, but your parents. A praying grandma, <laughs> mother. <laughs> yeah, but you, but you still, you know, and again, not having children, you realize you still want your kids. What I told my friends is, is a black man, like I, all these things are all in the world, but you still want to have to, you, you have a choice of living your life in, in spite of all the world of the world or just talking away and, you know, never living. And I think for most of us, that's not, the, not an option. Right. And so it is, um, but yeah, that, that anxiety, my mom, yeah, I told her, I, I, visit, I visit them, you know, like on Sundays and circle C and I'll drive home and she'll call me and make sure I got home. Right. And, you know, I'm 37. Right. But still, right. And she told me why. And it was, just, you know, we're in Austin. I've been in forever for 27 years. It's just, it's you know, before all this even right it's just a right. thing 
right. It's a fear. Yeah. Right, it's a fear. One thing you made me think about is the resilience of black people in particular. Um, we carry that around. If you look at the data about the, the educational gap, the educational divide, how black children um, perform um, um, poor, poorer than their white peers, um, there's all kinds of data that shows that. But despite their circumstances, it has been improving over time. Now we begin, we see some slipping in certain areas, but overall, despite that, because if you really, if you really stop, pause and think about our history as a people, 100 years ago, in the 1800s, um, we could not, it was illegal for us to learn to read. Despite that, we are attorneys, doctors, social workers, professional people, despite that. So the strength and the resilience of us as a people um, has been, it's just astounding if you really like press the pause button. And you know, you see all these pictures about with the, with the children standing on the crates, where, where, what equality is and what equity is, and how some people start off slower than the other people, and how um, 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 <laughs> um, it's Zoom life. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, how some people start off, you know, at lower levels than, than other people, um, and what that what that means. But I, I, I get like almost, I get overwhelmed when I think about the resilience of my people. Mm -hmm. And I want us to channel that kind of resilience into continuing to lift the race. Um, because, you know, we've, uh, we've been here 400 years. The 1619 Project, if, if, if your listeners um, have not, are not familiar with that, is the New York Times, um, Nicole Hannah Jones 1619 Project from the New York Times. It's astounding. It's a, it's a podcast. You can, you can buy it from the New York Times. It comes in all kinds of formats. It's astounding. So they, they talk about 400 years. And if you segregate that 400 years into 50-year segments, in 400 years, and I'm an engineer, so I think mathematically like this, it's, it's eight 50-year segments. So we were enslaved or oppressed and didn't get our equality, if you will, until 40 or 50 years ago in the 1960s. So for 350 of the 400 years, we were either enslaved, oppressed, or under the Jim Crow laws. So that's seven-eighths of the time we've been in this nation. And the last 40 slash 50 years, you cannot discriminate against us legally, but we still face systemic racism and um, inequities. So we, we have a long way to go. We've made tremendous progress and our resilience is not going anywhere. The effects of oppression and racism in the criminal justice system, in the education system, in the housing industry, in the banking industry are extremely prevalent. Um, so now with reform in all areas, and this is what I was saying earlier, it takes all of us 
in our areas to be able to just kind of continue what I would the anti-defamation league calls the good fight mm -hmm. and bring your best to the good fight. Um, switching gears related to still the HT, just how, just how, I mean, how has COVID affected um, y'all, y'all's plan for the fall, right? I mean, yeah. still CBD. I mean, I mean, I've seen reports from different campuses across the country about how, what they're planning to do, um, you know, mm -hmm. online classes or, or right. pull, pull back, you know, UT, I think it's doing a, a more hybrid uh, kind of deal for that. But have y'all at this point right. figured out what you want to do yet? I, um, I'm proud of my campus for the, um, what we did in the spring to lift the campus, a 145-year-old institution, to fully online in two weeks um, successfully. We had some bumps in the road, which are totally expected, but we're not an online school. So back to resilience and strength. Um, that lift happened because of the dedicated faculty and staff of, of, of my campus. We, stay on, we stayed on with online instruction. Um, we have no students um, living on campus and no camps on campus for the summer. We have not made a formal announcement for the um, fall. Um, the safety and health of our institution, of our students, or our campus communities, was the students, the faculty, the staff, et cetera. Our decision-making has to be very different from uh, my sister institutions in the Central Texas area because I serve a vulnerable population um, at, at a greater magnitude than um, my sister institutions do. Um, one thing that I would like to point out is this pressure that we feel when it comes to um, fiscal instability because we're so driven by it, we're tuition driven by our enrollment is not new to historically black colleges. This is not new. It's compounded by the virus, but it's not new. And that's another reflection on who we are. And despite it all, um, or because of it all, we persist. So, and there's a, a, you know, several things that you have to think about. Um, students' availability to um, technology. Um, we have a very old physical plant. So our buildings are not with the latest um, HVAC units in them like um, um, we would like because of different reasons. We have a very old physical plan. Um, students, um, as we all now know, the internet is not a utility. Everybody doesn't have it, uh, which is another whole show. Mm -hmm. um, but um, that's something that we really were faced with, with students availability, students having um, access to technology um, um, for them to continue their instruction. Uh, so there are all these factors that we have to consider. I've watched more webinars, sat in on more um, presidential meetings about COVID-19. I've read um, ad nauseum. Um, we, we, we strictly follow, we have a pandemic preparedness group who dog, doggedly follows um, the World Health Organization CDC guidelines and the state's guidelines and the city's guidelines. So we have not made um, a decision whether to go fully online fully on ground or somewhere hybrid, um, some version of it hybrid. But we have to make the decision as what's best for Houston Tillerson community and with a commitment to this, the safety. And it's, it, this is the crystal ball of super cloudy. So it's, you know, we don't, and it changes daily. Hourly it seems sometimes. <laughs> so the hardest decision that I've made, um, AJ, was um, postponing commencement. That was the hardest decision I've made so far. 
And the second hardest will be, or maybe equally as hard, will be our final decision on what we do as a campus when it comes to the fall. But postponing commencement was hard because it's, it, it's, it's, it means so much to my students. Um, I say this a, a lot because it's so real. We graduate families, we don't graduate students because 45% of my students are first generation. So they are um, the beginning of dismantling um, poverty from gen generational poverty. They are the beginning of building generational wealth. So that commencement symbolizes that. Um, we postponed it, we did not cancel it because we will celebrate those graduates in some way, in some fashion, um, in person where we can all socially be together. Mm -hmm. And this is temporary. It's temporary. And time's flying, as we said. Yes, time's flying. It's so. July, it's June. It's almost July already. So it's temporary. Um, we just, this is one of those moments in history that we will trudge through and we will be a stronger university on the side, on the other side of this. It's, you know, it's like you put that, that you put that um, um, metal iron in the fire, mm -hmm. strengthen it, and we will be a stronger university on the other side of this. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. like we will be a stronger people on the other side of the civic unrest. As long as we continue to forward, use this momentum forward to lift a race of people. For the, you know, and I had several people close to me and this folks who I'm connected with online that I saw the protest, they're, they're admitting the protest was the first time they had been either, were one either knew about East Tilson or, and or had been on the campus. Mm -hmm. So for those folks and also for folks who have in the community, you know, corporations or individuals who are looking to contribute or help. And, and I've had personal inquiries to me about ways that people can can give back to the black community. And I've, and, you know, I've listed H, uh, Houston Tilson on, um, on like my CEO note too about my response mm -hmm. about George Floyd. Um, mm -hmm. What are, you know, besides I'll list HT's information um, in the show notes, what are ways that in terms of if folks were looking to help Houston Tilson that they could help out, right? Like just, yeah. And the most immediate, um, we have started a COVID-19 support fund. People can go to www.htu.edu and right in the top right corner, it has a button for donate and you can give to our COVID-19 support fund. We've launched a campaign to provide um, technology to our entire student body. And so if someone's interested in supporting students in that way, they can either contact myself um, contact the campus um, to talk about that further. But the COVID-19 support fund is going to be used for that. And that's to keep students engaged. My students can't take a gap year. Mm -hmm. they, they've got to keep moving forward, stay in, get in school and stay in school. So um, we want your treasure and or send us your babies. We'll take very good care of them here. Um, we have a, our core values spell out ideal, that's integrity, diversity, excellence, accountability, and leadership. And that whole ideal experience is something I'm very proud of, is what we do here at Houston Tillerson. So send us your babies, send us your treasure, and that's how you can invest in the future, by investing in Houston Tillerson. Great. Well, Dr. Colette Pierce Burnett, the President and CEO of Houston Tillerson University, thank you always for your time. I know you have a lot going on and uh, we'd love to have you back on the show uh, in the future just to talk about what's going on on the, on the campus and the community. 
anytime. You've been my friend, ally, and my accomplice, and I really <laughs> respect you. Much love. Thank you for the opportunity to share the story. Thank you for listening to today's BG podcast. You can find this episode and prior recordings at www.binghamgp.com slash podcast and iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe to stay current on future posts.